Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So on this show, we've spoken about children's behavior, the impact of positive discipline, as well as bullying. So a lot of guests have guided us on how to improve our own parenting abilities through a lot of their own examples. Today, we're focusing on an episode on understanding neurodevelopment disorders. So as parents, it's something that could be difficult is hearing that some parts of society negatively labeling kids who aren't neurotypical. Our guest today has helped in society's view of neurodivergent children. She's a parent activist, best-selling author, and a founder of Tilt Parenting, Debbie Rubber. How are you going today, Debbie? I'm good, thank you. Um, so when I was sort of researching a little bit more about uh, what you do and how you, the founding of how of Tilt Parenting, there were so many things that you've sort of, you didn't start off studying this straight from the bat. You had a completely different degree, completely different major, and it's amazing how you sort of redirected that into what you do now. So can you tell me more about how you got started in it? Yes, and you're right. This was not part of my career plan at all. I used to work in kids' television for years. I worked in documentary production, and then I spent many years writing books and writing and creating content for young adults and teen girls specifically. And I was really passionate about that work. And I still am, I still have a very soft spot in my heart for, um, for teen girls. But then I became a parent and I gave birth to a child to, you know, as, as my child got older, we started realizing, oh, you know, this isn't gonna be a typical parenting experience. And my child has some neuro differences that required more support more kind of discovery about how to help this kid thrive in schools and just how are we going to navigate this path and i felt my experience was that it was really hard to access solid resources and a lot of the resources i found felt very negative they were really focused on problems and i it didn't feel great and so i just decided then and there that you know, once I was in a better place, I was going to kind of focus all the energy I was putting into the teen girl space and all of that creativity and content creation. And I was going to pivot and start creating resources for parents. And that's what I ultimately did. It's amazing how one sort of one situation can change your whole life and change how you want to help society. Because it's it's a really big issue when we're talking about it, because it always you see a lot of kids labeled as being different, as being not fitting in to society. And what's amazing is how impactful that is on pretty much everyone. 
because you don't think about their own feelings when you say that they're not normal. And the whole not normal thing is a big, is a big thing with me. I hate when people say you're not normal, you're weird and all that. Cause it's like, it's no one's normal. Like I don't get why people say that you're not normal. Cause there's no one that's very, everyone has something that's very special about them. And yes, we ignore that because we're wanting them to be normal. We're wanting them to fit in with society. So it's a very strange thing. And I'm glad we're able to talk about this today and sort of bring this onto the show because it's definitely something that I'm really passionate about talking about. That's great. Yeah, no, I think it is such a different conversation even from when I started Tilt almost seven years ago. And that's really exciting that more and more people are kind of realizing there is no one way to be. Uh, normal doesn't really exist. And so, yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So can you tell me more about what Tilt does and what Tilt sort of focuses on? Yes. So what I initially thought of Tilt, I wanted it to be kind of a go-to resource for parents who discovered, oh, my kid has ADHD or my child has dyslexia or is gifted. And I want to really access resources that feel good that feel positive and that have a strengths-based approach. So that was my initial goal. I also wanted it to look really good. I didn't want it to, like, I didn't want people to go to the website and feel like, you know, oh, my kid is a problem. This is one of those sites. So I wanted it to feel relevant and um, just accessible. And so I launched with a podcast and I still have the podcast today. I've done over 300 episodes. It's kind of what my main content creation for parents. And I talk to thought leaders and authors and parenting experts about really all kinds of issues having to do with neurodiversity. And so it started as the podcast. I also launched it with a manifesto because I saw Tilt as a revolution that was in my language when I started it, the parenting revolution, because I see this work is being shifting the paradigm and really changing the way we look at and think about neurodevelopmental differences and not think of them as disorders, but rather a, a different way of being that comes with incredible strength. So those were kind of my foundational ways of bringing Tilt into the world. And they're still there, but now I also offer a lot of community support and just free resources. I wrote a book called Differently Wired. So I'm really trying to give parents support in any way that they might be able to receive it just so they know that they're not alone. And mm -hmm. so they feel empowered with really positive, again, strengths-based supports to help their families. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing how, how it's very, it's a very specific area and mm -hmm. it's something that I never knew that it was like when you talked about ADHD, I thought it was that on its own and then everything on its own. But neurodevelopment is pretty much under the umbrella of pretty much all those other, I don't, I hate to say the word disorders because for me, like I, I'm dyslexic. So I have trouble with that as well. And I hated growing up people making that my thing, making okay. that my area, um, making that my special to work on area. So the whole idea of it being a disorder or anything like that is always is always so negative to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think language is really important and that was a big piece of when I first created Tilt was I 
started using this phrase differently wired because I didn't like the fact that, you know, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You know, um, there were pathologizing neurodifferences. There's so much talk or there was so much talk about the epidemic of autism, of rising autism rates. And so really looking at it as a disorder or, you know, I remember my child, we read an article years ago about the risks, you know, if you... Uh, a pregnant mother did X and that meant the risks of a child being autistic. And my child said, what do they think autism is a disease? What do you mean risks? And I just loved that. Like, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about the prevalence. Like it might be more likely that this could happen. And so I see a shift in language as being part of this bigger conversation and really looking at it as, as a difference. A disability is fine, but that word disorder, you know, you're not alone in having that kind of knee-jerk reaction to it because it really does focus. It's just focusing on deficits it, and it's pathologizing something that is just a natural variance in the way one's brain is wired. Yeah, no, exactly. I completely agree with that. Language is such a big part and kids take, especially kids, kids take it to heart very easily. They're here. So that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, before we get started, we'd love to play a little icebreaker okay. and just sort of get to know you while we're on the topic of you, just to sort of get to know you a little bit more. So when I say these five things, just sort of say the first thing that comes into your head. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the first one is your favorite book. My favorite book is Kurt Vonnegut's book, Breakfast of Champions. Do you want me to tell you why or just you yeah, just yeah. want the answer? Go, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever asks me these questions. It's so fun. <laughs> um, so Kurt Vonnegut is my favorite author, but what the first book of his I read is Breakfast of Champions. And it blew my mind open that you could write in such a creative, irreverent way and still be talking about really important topics. It just kind of changed the way I thought about storytelling. And yeah, I think he's brilliant. I have a soft spot in my heart for Kurt Vonnegut. Okay, that's that's amazing. I love people who say that they love books, that they love of books. There are so many guests that come on here and they can't list a book. It's so easy for uh, me to list like five <laughs> books in a moment when I'm reading. Totally, same. <laughs> How about your favorite movie? Well, this is another easy one for me because there's this movie called Broadcast News that came out. I used to work in a movie theater in high school, mm -hmm. and I think this movie came out in 1986, and now you all know how old I am. And um, it's a movie about the news industry, you know, and it starred Holly Hunter as a young news producer, and she was obsessed with ethics as a journalist and trying to work in a in a um, in an industry that was just evolving and changing as, yeah. as news has right over the past thirty years, and I became obsessed. I wanted to be Holly Hunter. I pursued my career for many years based on that movie, so it left a big imprint. And it's it won the the Oscar that year. It's it's just a beautiful, well written, amazing movie. If you haven't watched it, I totally recommend it. Yes, I've seen it quite a few times because it is. Yeah. <laughs> so good it is the kind of ideology i, I love like because i'm studying media and i'm a media student what? as well and okay. for me it's one of my favorite things to watch movies like i think there's this and then morning glory as well 
Yes. Is another one. So and it's, one. Yes. it's so amazing. Yeah. How about your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Right now I'm listening to one called On with Kara Swisher. It's probably the one I'm listening to the most. She is a former New York Times journalist and she's very brilliant and sharp and she has access to really high profile guests. And so, yeah, just really like nerdy conversations with super interesting people. I love those. It's such a it's such a nice thing to listen to on the train or like when you're by yourself, just sort of indeed hear them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. How about your famous role model? Yeah. Um, gosh, that's a really hard question. I think the person that comes to mind uh, right now is um, someone who is a, her name's Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and she is, you know, a, po a politician here in the U.S. But what I love about her is she's, she's uh, you know, comes from a family of immigrants. She is a very outspoken, thoughtful, brilliant woman. And I just really appreciate, I watch her talk and I'm like, gosh, if I could have that kind of confidence in, in a room and kind of speak my truth in that way, wow, that would be pretty amazing. So I just really appreciate how she shows up and how passionate and strong she is. You're definitely not the first person to say her as well. Oh, cool. And I've, <laughs> I've, Googled, I've had to Google her so many times in order to figure out who she is, because in Australia, we don't hear a lot about American politics or we only mm -hmm. hear the big goss that sort of unleashes. But yeah, yeah. So it's really nice to sort of hear people that aren't under a big spotlight as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Right, like Mother Teresa or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about a favorite course that you've completed? A favorite course that I've completed? Um, gosh, um, I do like to nerd out on classes. And uh, I'm going to mention a super random one from when I went to grad school. I went to grad school in the 90s. Uh, at a school called the New School for Social Research here in New York City. And they gave all graduates a free class. And I took an acapella choir class. And mm -hmm. I just really enjoyed taking that because it was such a, it was just something so different from what I was doing in my day-to-day -day life. And to just get to play um, and perform with, with a small group of really good singers was really fun. The, the that's the first time I've ever heard a acapella choir as a favorite course. <laughs> and I think that is absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> that is a very interesting answer. And I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I should be like, well, when I took the neuroscience or whatever <laughs> class, but, but yeah, that's what came to mind for me. No, that, that's always fun. <laughs> so we're going to into the topic today and to begin with, what do you think being a parent means to you? Well, um, being a parent to me means so interesting. I was just um, editing a podcast where we were, uh, I was interviewing someone about supporting middle schoolers when your child is at that age of kind of a tween teen. And he talked about our role as being a companion to our kids. And I really love that language that's fresh in my head. But I, I see that us as parents, our role is to nurture 
and support these children that we have the honor of raising and really holding their their uniqueness and their wholeness as their own being here mm-hmm. and and our job being then to help them design the life that they want for themselves and give them the resources that would help them grow up as a self-actualized adult. So I see it as kind of almost a mentorship relationship with our kids, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's it's pretty amazing how everyone has sort of come on and said a completely different different answer and they mm-hmm. have gone on to you know it's being a role model it's all these all these other things and i definitely would say that there is no set definition of being a parent because everyone mm-hmm. has a different take i'm not a parent myself but i've i've grown up seeing how my parents raised us and seeing how different and seeing how hard it is to sort of raise people and try to raise them differently, understanding that both kids have a different idea of what their life wants to look like. And um, my sister and I, we grew up completely different and we had a completely different upbringing in a way that I was definitely, I messed up quite a lot more than she had, she did. Um, So the punishments were very different, but somehow we both managed to sort of grow up and be very similar people. So it's, it's very, it's very interesting. That is interesting. I have to ask, are you the youngest of the two? I am the oldest. You're the oldest. Yes. Okay. Yes, I am. Um, right. But she is um, maturely the oldest. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I was the youngest of two, and I was the one who got in all the trouble. I was the one who did all the things and really pushed my parents. And as interesting, I have one child, and I... I and my my husband and I both have really approached parenting very intentionally. So and really trying to to kind of break patterns from the way we were raised and and parent in a way that hopefully um, supports our child and and saves them from some of the the stresses that I you know that my husband and I went through as young people. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a really especially in today's society do you think that the position of being a parent has actually changed and sort of been rearranged a lot yeah i think we just know so much more about what kids need to grow up securely attached and to be healthy humans you know i think certainly in my generation majority of parents we're using a very, you know, authoritarian style, very top-down approach, very punishment, consequences, compliance, like this is, you know, we're going for good behavior. And 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 so there, there wasn't a lot of collaboration. And I think now, especially with the what we're learning with kids' nervous systems and regulation, and, you know, we can talk about that stuff uh, in more detail, but we just know that when a child has a sense of control over their life and they feel seen and respected and safe, they are so much more available to learn and to grow again as healthy human beings who really understand themselves. And so I think there is a shift from, well, among at least the parents I hang out with, not all parents are on board yet, but there is a shift moving away from this focus on compliance and quote unquote good behavior with that top-down approach and more, how can we support this child 
in really learning these skills in a way that preserves their their autonomy, their agency, and their self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know that there's a lot of like availability to sort of improve your parenting. Like, for example, there's now podcasts and there's a lot of things that our parents didn't have. Mm-hmm. Has that helped in sort of readjusting how we see ourselves as parents? I think so. I mean, certainly there's a there are a lot more resources out there, a lot more touch points in which to learn information. I mean, I'm sure when my I don't even know if there are parenting books around, right? Except for maybe Dr. Spock, maybe. I don't even know when that book came out, but when, for example, my parents were were having kids. So I think, I do think with every generation, you know, the culture of parenting has changed. I also think my generation, we are, we are a generation who predominantly has done work on themselves, right? A lot of us have had gone to therapy, have kind of, you know, really explored ourselves. And that was not something that generations before did. And so the more we as adults can do our own work and focus on our own personal development, that is naturally going to enable us to be more engaged, informed, intentional parents for our kids. Mm. Yeah, I I definitely have, like, I think I've spoken about this a few episodes for a lot of episodes on the show, but I, my idea of like, the whole idea of being a parent for me is to not let my kids sort of deal with the same things that I dealt with as a kid. Uh And I understand it the way I understand how I want to be as a parent is for me healing from a lot of those things and realizing that a lot of stuff was not my fault a lot of things did not come from me and I think when you're talking about generational trauma as well there's a lot of things that we're now I mean that wasn't a phrase that our parents knew that parents knew before us they Uh -uh. they just saw it as you gotta man up you gotta be stronger than what it is but like I know like my relationship with my mom now she's starting to heal from stuff that she dealt with as a Uh kid because Uh now there's availability for that um, I'm starting to heal from her with the stuff that they've done. And there's a lot of things that a lot of things that we're both healing from at the same time. So it's great. Yeah. It's really, I think it's opened us up to a lot of communication. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, there's always, there's a lot of conversations about like, what did I do wrong as a parent? And that's, that's the biggest question that I get. And I'm just like, I don't know how to say it at yeah. the same time. So yeah, it's a very interesting day and age. It is. And I think that intergenerational drama piece is huge. And I'm happy to hear that you and your mom are communicating about this and that hopefully, you know, it's going to be healing for both of you. Um, I think it's hard for for your mom and for the, you know, our parents to hear things because they probably didn't have access to the information or resources and are, were doing the best they could. Right. And there's probably a lot of guilt and a lot of shame wrapped up in that, but it is, I think, exciting that we as parents get to break those cycles. We get to decide, you know, I'm going to show up differently for my child and, and really, it doesn't mean that we're saving our kids from their own every every human has their own stuff right they're, they're yeah. that they're going to deal with and so it's not like we can 
prevent our kids from experiencing hardship or having their own challenges that they'll have to deal with. Uh, but we can certainly break those really harmful cycles. No, exactly. Um, so what are, so we're going into sort of the neurodevelopmental disorders. What, are, what is sort of a neurodevelopment disorder? Yeah, um, and I'll just say, we can just use the word kind of neurodivergence. Um, so okay. we'll just kind of like put, push away that word disorder because we don't really yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, I'll, and I'll just say the neurodiversity movement was really kind of started by the autistic community. So the word neurodiverse used to really be kind of tied, uh, very connected with autism. Now neurodivergence has really expanded and it's it's kind of a synonym for my phrase differently wired. And there are so many ways to be neurodivergent, but some of the kind of examples would be, we talked about ADHD, autism, being gifted is a neurodivergence because there are a lot of unique needs for gifted individuals. Uh, learning disabilities like dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, so many more. There's lots of learning disabilities. Um, sensory processing issues is another way that people you know, are, are navigating their sensory experience can be part of that neurodevelopmental difference. Uh, processing speed, twice exceptionality, which is someone who's both gifted and has one or more of these other neural differences. So it's a really big bucket, um, anxiety. You know, there are a lot of things that also kind of mental uh, challenges, mental illnesses, if you will, um, like anxiety, depression, often th those aren't necessarily considered neural differences, but they mm -hmm. often go hand in hand with, you know, people who have who are neurodivergent. And what impacts do sort of being neurodivergent have on a parent's parenting sort of ability and behavior? Well, I think the biggest challenge, well, one of the biggest challenges for parents raising differently wired kids is that we are navigating systems schools, educational systems, um, societies that that weren't really designed to support our child's unique way of navigating the world. So we often, as parents, find ourselves being encouraged to figure out ways to get our kids to quote unquote fit in, to look more normal, to ta tamp down on behaviors that may be just an expression of the neural difference, but because they are problematic in certain environments, we need to get rid of them. And so parents really struggle because again, we're, we're trying to, well, you know, that the metaphor of fitting a square peg into a round hole, like it's never going to fit. And so mm -hmm. when parents continue to try to force that, um, relationship and get their kids, you know, to look and be quote unquote more normal, that can be really challenging. It can mean getting kicked out of schools. It can mean, you know, a lot of struggle and pain for the child who isn't accepted. So that is probably one of the biggest, biggest challenges. But I think even before that, there is just this sense of what's going on here? Like what, I'm reading the same parenting books as my friends and I'm using the same strategies, but my home life is really challenging or my kid is dysregulated a lot of the time. And 
Um, so parents also just feel at wit's end often or just getting mixed messages about what's actually going on or not knowing how to find resources, dealing with their own embarrassment because they may feel that they're being judged by other parents in school communities. So it's a really complicated thing to be raising a differently wired child if you're feel if you're kind of early on in that journey and you 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 haven't found supportive resources and you really just don't know where to start or what to do. It's amazing that being differently wired isn't a new concept. It isn't a like from the way that they say it, neurodivergence is not something that's new. Like people have been having ADHD for the longest time. Mm-hmm. But why do you think that the school systems still aren't sort of really catering to that as is such a general kind of um, a general kind of concept now? But why aren't they sort of still not being in that area? I mean, I think educational traditional educational systems are are just they've been this way for so long change is really hard and slow there's a lot of bureaucracy it people are not informed um don't really understand narrow differences i mean i think back to when i was a student i i never heard of adhd i don't think when i was a kid and and now knowing what i know about autism and uh, these other neuro differences I can look through my high school yearbook and be like, oh my gosh, autistic, autistic, ADHD. Like I, I, know, I know now, but these are kids who got kicked out of classes because they were disruptive, who had poor emotional regulation skills, who didn't know how to engage socially and got bullied. Like I can, I see um, how these things showed up, but there was no awareness, right? Uh, that that this was even going on. So now we're having more and more awareness, which is great. But, you know, if you talk to most teachers, they might have had, you know, two classes of one semester, you know, maybe two, you know, 90 minute classes where they learned about learning disabilities and that's it. And they're good to go. Like there's just, they don't understand necessarily how these things show up in a classroom or how to support these kids. They don't have the information. And so when our kids are in these environments where their needs aren't being met, then we often see behavior that is problematic and it just becomes a behavioral issue. And that's what's happening. And so we're it's slow going, but the work is to really help educators and schools better understand what neurodifferences look like in their students and be willing to expand the way that they can accommodate these kids' unique needs in classrooms. But it's hard. Schools are underfunded. Classroom, if you think about, you know, in the U.S., I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the U.S., a public school, 25 to 30 kids in a class, one teacher. You know, if you've got five to 10 differently wired kids in that class, all of which have unique accommodations or needs, that's really not manageable for a lot Mm -hmm. of teachers. So it's the system needs a pretty significant overhaul. And I think it's a big thing when a parent doesn't recognize it in their child as well. It's another Mm -hmm. completely different story where it's 
they're not knowing and they're no especially if like they talk about the level there's some that are high some that are mild and everyone sort of they see it as oh they're just messing up oh they're just fooling around but mm -hmm. how what are some of the signs that that they have a sort of different that they are differently wired yeah i mean i think there can be lots of different clues but I would say if you have a child who is struggling in, envi in certain environments, whether that is, again, school or after school clubs or preschool or camps or play dates or, you know, a, a, a situation that most students or most kids would, would be able to kind of navigate unpredictability and things like that. And then you have a child who the littlest thing for us it seems little could completely result in a, in a in a meltdown or dysregulation or you have a child who's who's very anxious or has kind of um sensory things like loud noises are very hard for them to kind of deal with or they get overwhelmed easily you know we can kind of see our kids just not thriving in situations where most other kids are like eh, i can deal with this you know and so I think of of our kids as being the more kids, M-O-R-E. So like the kids who, like all kids have tantrums when they're little, but differently wired kids, tantrums are just going to be a little bit bigger. Um, all kids can be really strong-willed, but a differently wired kid might really, really struggle on a whole new level if demands are placed on them. And so we'll start getting feedback from teachers or from other people that, oh, this has been challenging. Um, so if we're starting to get feedback, we're noticing our child is dysregulated a lot of the time, which could look like an explosion. It could look like being overly sensitive and crying a lot. It could look like a child who's really withdrawing. Those are all signs that there's something else going on with our child that their body is kind of responding to and, and kind of reacting in a way to protect them because they're being triggered or they're, they're just not being supported in their environments. It's, it's really interesting when you're talking about this whole sensory, sensory thing. Cause to me, it's always like you hear it and you hear parents go, Oh, don't be a wimp or don't be a baby or things like that because they can't handle it. Why, why is that such a like quick response to thing to, for some parents to sort of be like, this stop being a baby and why do you think that that's such a response for them that's a really good question i mean i think on the one hand we were first of all we're often parenting as we talked about the way we were parented so if we if we if we're expecting that our child is going to be able to navigate things without a big you know without getting really upset like they lost a game or their ice cream fell off or something, you know, it's like, it's not that big of a deal, right? So that's going to be our reaction. We're interpreting it through our own lens as adults with our own coping strategies and lived experience. And we also can feel that a child's behavior, especially in public, is a reflection on how good of a job we're doing as parents. And so we may minimize their experience or try to shame them or, you know, get them to comply and behave in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's just, again, it, 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 
requires us to to kind of pause, get out of our own reactivity about what's happening and realize that no child wants to get really upset. No, no child wants to go through their life feeling overly sad about something, you know, like there's no payoff for that. So if our kid is having a, what seems to us to be an outsized reaction to a setback, then it's because they don't have the capability to respond in a different way right now. But that's a something, that's a reframe that in that we're not kind of hardwired as parents to go to. Our default tends to be like, come on, it's not that big of a deal, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's just not what's been modeled for us. So it requires us to kind of do our own work to get curious about what is really going on here with my mm-hmm. kid. So when you do, when a parent does recognize, um, there are a lot of ways that you can sort of get evaluated. Um, What usually happens during the evaluation process? Yeah, I mean, it it depends on what you're getting the evaluation for. But if you're doing a, you know, a good neuropsych, uh, neuropsych evaluation would be someone who has experience in really getting to know kids and spending time kind of exploring what's going on with them. So it could be, you know, doing a variety of tests. It could be an IQ test. It could be, you know, some, some tests with like blocks. It could be, you know, there, there are a lot of different kinds of, um, battery of tests that neuropsychs will have access to. They'll also ask parents to fill out a number of questionnaires, just talking about how often does your child do this? And you kind of fill in like all the time, never, rarely, you know, those bubble things. So yep. there'll be a lot of those forms. They'll also tend to get information from other people who ha- who engage with your child. So it could be teachers or um, a babysitter or just other adults who can give feedback because what a, a really good neuropsych evaluator is going to want to do is is look at the whole picture of what's happening with your child. Spending ideally more than an hour, you know, a good neuropsych might spend like two days with your child and get to know them and kind of see how they navigate different situations. And then based on that, they'll make an assessment. And so I'll just say for autism, for example, there's something called the the ADOS, the ADOS, I don't know how you say it, ADOS, but it's it's kind of a very specific battery of tests that an evaluator would give to a child. And based on what, what criteria they meet, they would or would not receive that diagnosis. So, but ideally we're looking for someone who's gonna spend time and really look at a lot of different areas of who our kids are and look at them as a whole being and not just kind of checking off a list and saying, here you go. Like we want people to, who are gonna take the time to understand kind of the unique nuances of our children. Mm-hmm. And how important is it for a child to sort of be evaluated? Well, I think that, that it can be quite helpful here in the United States. Again, I'm not sure how the system is in Australia, but the a big reason for getting an evaluation here might be to get kind of a formal diagnosis so that a school is legally required to provide certain accommodations or supports for that student in the classroom. And so, you know, for example, having 
ADHD as a diagnosis or autism as as a diagnosis would mean that a public school would have to provide a child with an individualized education plan that would map out, like, these are the goals for this child and these are how we're going to work toward them. And so in that case, having a diagnosis can be so helpful. But even beyond that, I think that getting information, not because a diagnosis is going to solve all your challenges or it's not going to say, here's the roadmap now. This is the, this, these are the, you know, this is what we learned. Here's what to do. That's not how it works. But if you look at an evaluation as a tool to gain really useful insight and information about your child's unique profile and, you know, going back to that strengths piece, their areas of significant strength because all our kids have them. And then really understanding where are some of their relative weaknesses. You know, sometimes it's just the divide between their weaknesses and the strengths could be so big that that is what is causing a lot of the dysregulation. So if you look at it as kind of just some insight into what's really going on with your child, you can start using those strengths, leveraging them to help support in other areas where your child is having these kind of relative weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Now, I was watching, like I think I've mentioned earlier in the show, I was watching your uh, TED Talk recently, I think yesterday, on just preparing myself to what I should be talking to you about. And it's so interesting because I was um, talking with my sister and we were discussing, uh, she got diagnosed later in life. So she's 21 this year and she got diagnosed when she was 18. So she did it herself and it's so interesting the fact that how important it was for her just to understand herself mm-hmm. and it explains so much of the childhood and everything and explains so much as to why she's so sensitive and we used to and i regret that like we all we felt so bad because we were like okay we used to call her being sensitive being too soft like she's too good too small for this world and the reason was because she's she's high sensory. She can't deal with those kind of things. And it's really interesting to sort of like when we're talking about how important it was, even for yourself, it's still pretty important. Like I know they talk about you should do it when you're young and we're talking about that today, but just how important it was when you're doing it at any age, it could be like 40 and you're starting to realize it because it's something that's available to be able to be discussed now. So we're talking about the, the, any characteristics that are sort of, that are sort of giving you that vibe that you are, you are different and instead of being labeled different. So what are some of the characteristics that you can sort of be aware of, not for, even for parents, but for yourself as well? Yeah. And I just want to touch upon the fact that there is a huge influx of adults who are self-diagnosing both with ADHD and autism, and it has been a game changer. And to have that, to finally kind of connect the dots, you know, on things that have been challenging can be so empowering. And that's another reason I would just also add why parents are often concerned about labeling a child that there's going to be this stigma 
And, you know, they're afraid that that's going to hurt their child's self-esteem or sense of self-worth. But what we know is that these kids already know that they're different or they know that they're compensating or struggling in certain areas. And to have that information and be like, oh, I'm not broken. This is the way my brain is wired is huge. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, so going back to your question, I would say that if you, you know, first of all, I think COVID's been super interesting because a lot of adults have spent a lot of time, right, thinking about their own style or just wrecking, starting to really explore like, wow, I really struggle with this environment or, or what's going on. And so there has been a big spike, especially in um, people self-diagnosing. But I would say most people who have neurodevelopmental differences are masking in some ways, right? They, which means that they're, they are, they feel one way, but they know the expectations for certain environments. And so they act the way they mask. So they show up in the way that they know is expected, but it drains them. It's exhausting for them or it doesn't feel good. And so I think if you recognize that you know, certain environments are really challenging for you, or you're someone who's like realizing this is seems so easy for everybody else, but it's so hard for me. And, uh, you know, maybe you've internalized that as meaning that you're not smart or, you know, that you're just not good at this or whatever. Um, so if you have those areas of tension where you're like, wow, this has always been hard for me. Other people seem to do it with ease, or I'm really realizing this environment is exhausting for me or makes or spikes my anxiety or, you know, though if you're experiencing that stuff, you can get curious about it and be like, I wonder if there's something going on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so interesting you're talking about that. I mean, you said COVID was a huge sort of self-realization for a lot of people in mm-hmm. so many different ways. Um, talking about masking is very interesting because even when I was diagnosed with dyslexia, I didn't tell anyone growing up. Like that wasn't something that um, kids talked about because you were like, oh, so they'll get you. I think I told a couple of people in the early start and I remember them just being, oh, can you read this? And they're holding the book right in front of my face. And I'm like, well, what do you think? You're like, I definitely can read that. It's like right there. But so I didn't tell anyone when I just kept moving schools and I hit it really well. I got used to it and I sort of learned to get through, get through it and get by it. And it's so interesting is talking about masking because like you mask it in order to hide it from so many people who are just going to see, test your limits and see how far you can go, especially when it goes to high school. High school is like the biggest part where the last thing you want to do is stand out for a lot of people. The last thing you want is to be seen as being different or being strange. And it's so interesting when, yeah, it's, it hit so hard when you said masking, I was like, oh yeah, okay. I can talk about that part. So having a childhood like that is already pretty, pretty challenging in order to deal with. But so, yeah, it's just, um, it's very interesting when you talk about that. Yeah, it takes its toll on people for sure. And I'll just mention a book by Dr. Devin Price that came out last year. It's called Unmasking Autism. And he's a researcher uh, in Chicago here who really just explored deeply this area of masking and, you know, what it looks like and really what the cost is to somebody 
who spends most of their life masking? And then how can we kind of shift? How can autistic people shift and, and be in control of when they mask or don't, or, or at least feel that they have a sense of agency so they can navigate on their own terms? Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about the impacts. Now we talk about a lot of the other stuff and going into the impacts, what are some of the situations that sort of impact a child in, in the terms of their health and daily lives? Well, I think, again, what we're learning more and more about is the connection between a child's nervous system and and how they feel navigating their life, right? And so when a child is repeatedly put in environments where they're not being supported or their needs aren't being met or they're getting feedback regularly that they're screwing it up or they're not doing well, um, they're nervous system is most likely going to be triggered into a state of fight or flight or freeze or fawn. And over time, you know, kids, a lot of kids develop anxiety and other mental health challenges because of spending way too much time with this like hypervigilant nervous system. And so that is a really significant challenge that a lot of kids face. So a lot of these kids also have traumatic experiences from school, like being shamed by a teacher in front of a class is a traumatic experience, right? And that's the kind of thing that can really stick with a child. And that's what's so, I think, urgent about this work is that there are a lot of kids, in fact, there's research that shows that kids with learning disabilities, neurodivergent kids are much higher Um, If you look at populations in prisons, it's a much higher percentage of kids, uh, of adults who have um, neurodevelopmental differences because, you know, being punished or being ill-behaved in school because of of a neural difference might might mean getting expelled and then, you know, you can kind of go down that road. So there's a real cost for these kids. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the most common challenges with parents experiencing that parents experience when raising children with neurodevelopmental neurodevelopmental uh, differences? I think the biggest challenge, I mean, there are a lot, but I think the area of challenge that I hear about the most from parents is that education piece. It's figuring out how do I find the right school? How do I afford the right school? How do I help this child learn on their terms and really get to feel good about their strengths. Again, when, you know, sometimes the, where a person lives, there aren't alternative educational and, you know, things available or homeschooling isn't an option. I will say a lot of parents of differently wired kids homeschool for at least a part of their child's, you know, educational journey. So I think finding a school fit is the biggest challenge. And that creates a lot of stress on families. I think navigating, finding the right therapist and then navigating insurance systems to try to get therapies paid for. Like there's a lot of red tape and logistics that can be really overwhelming and and hard for families to manage just from a resources perspective. And then when we have kids who are younger and who are really spending a lot of time in that emotional dysregulation, it just can be really hard 
to be parenting a human who's explosive or who has really big, intense emotional reactions. And as a parent, you know, parent going to work or maybe having other children and navigating their own stressors, and then to really kind of hold the space for this human and show up for them can be exhausting. So I think a lot of parents of differently wired kids also are just kind of burned out. Um, some, a lot of them struggle to find babysitters or sometimes the families of these parents don't get it. And so they're going to someone's house for the holidays in the family can be really stressful because the, you know, the, the family itself isn't supportive of what's going on. So I think parents can often just feel misunderstood and isolated and tapped out. Mm -hmm. And so what advice do you have for sort of going through the challenges? Like you say, for the holidays, for example, um, like Christmas is a big deal for a lot of people with spending time with family. What advice do you have for going through that situation with a neurodevelopment child? Yeah, I mean, I think especially around things like that where there's obligations, it's important for parents to kind of prioritize their child's and their family, their emotional safety first. Um, I mean, there's so many, I do, I have a whole like talk I give on how to, how to kind of prep for the holidays, but I would say um, setting boundaries and being really clear about those boundaries with family is important. Um, not putting our kids in situations where we know they're not going to be able to handle it. Right. And so I even think about the the dinner table at a holiday dinner. Sometimes we have these kids and they're, they have food sensitivities or they really hate the smell of whatever it is, or maybe they, they're super picky eaters, but that's because of sensory tactile things. Right. And so being really proactive and saying, so my I'm going to bring my food for my child. My child will not be eating what you're serving. No offense. It's just what we need to do right now. If that's a problem for you, then we can figure something else out, but this is what we need to do to support our family. So I think as parents, we need to prioritize without apology and compassionately prioritize our kids' needs and advocate for them and 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 proactively plan as much as possible. Like most of us know situations that can be really triggering for our kids. And so as much as we can kind of come up with a plan in advance. How are we going to handle this if this happens? Or what's our backup plan if it gets to be too much? Where's your cozy space going to be? What's our exit strategy if we need to leave early? Like coming up with those plans can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Going into a few of the last few of the last questions, um, what are some of the misconceptions that you have faced or that you have heard of dealing with a neurodivergent child? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is that because the way that these kids show up often looks like I'm going to use air quotes, bad behavior there. The misconception is that, you know, you're not being strict enough or you need to set better limits or your child's manipulating you, right? There's a lot of just a misunderstanding around people who don't have experience with neurodivergence um, about that, that we're doing something wrong. And I think that's, that's one of the most challenging ones because 
parents often then find themselves trying to over explain often to people who don't believe you anyway, right? Like speaking of another, you know, misconception, there's a, there are a lot of people who think ADHD doesn't exist, right? That that is just permissive parenting. And, you know, so I think there, there are a lot of ideas out there that, that are just not respectful and it, and it doesn't come from a malicious place. I don't think I think it comes from a place of lack of experience and just not knowing and understanding. But I think that puts a lot of pressure on parents of differently wired kids to, to navigate knowing that people are judging us again, or don't really believe um, what we're saying is really hard for our kids. It's so interesting, because you always hear the kid that you're not being a good parent, you're not a good enough parent, why aren't you raising your kid to be respectful? And like, that was one of the biggest mix, misconceptions, like, especially going around the holidays, um, or going to friends' houses, my sister is always just like, okay, I can't stay here, because everyone's screaming, all the kids are running around, and <laughs> and she was just, I think we didn't understand it enough to be like, okay, she can't deal with it, we need to go, but it was definitely something that they felt that, okay, she's just standing outside because she can only stand inside for a little bit. But yeah, growing up, it was such a very interesting way of her dealing with it because she was always just left out of a lot of things. And but, now like she's, she's so much happier now. She's got friends who sort of really understand that she is, has to do things at a certain limit. She can only stand a certain way. And it's so amazing to see just how many people really didn't understand what she was going through and I mean not just parents but like friends or family they're like okay why don't you just bring her in and they're grabbing her and forcing her in it was just it was I think we talked about it recently as she got older and she's like that was a really traumatic thing for me to deal with because I didn't know what to do you guys didn't know what to do none of us knew anything about it so yeah, it was um, talking about just the misconceptions. It was very interesting to sort of see how many people didn't really understand her, didn't really want to understand her. So, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I I hope that that's changing. I mean, I think it is. Of course, I spent all my time talking with people who are, you know, working to change this yep. paradigm. <laughs> but it does seem like, especially with, you know, this, again, this increase of people self-identifying and people are talking about these things much more that I hope that kind of the baseline of understanding has really risen and it's just going to get better and better. That's my hope. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I love that people are now talking about it freely. And I think well, as people are diagnosing themselves or getting diagnosed or and it's becoming such a safer atmosphere safer space for a lot of more people which i think um uni is a big like here in australia the uni that i go to it's very there's a place that's for kids who need a sensory down so they have like white noise playing in one of the rooms and it's just it's a calming space for kids who need to relax in a oh, huge sure. uni building so it's well, really amazing to see how they've developed it a little bit more 
Yeah, and in fact, you know, we also know that a lot of the accommodations that support neurodivergent kids also benefit neurotypical people as well. So having those calming spaces, like who wouldn't want that? You know what I'm saying? Um, so in a lot of ways, I think neurodivergent people are kind of paving the way for more resources and tools for everybody. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good thing in all, in all aspects. So going into the practice and habit part of the show, um, what is a practice that you do to improve your parenting of children with disabilities? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I, the word that comes to mind is deconstructing. Like I feel like I, as a regular practice have to kind of do self-examination and, and think about, you know, what, what is happening within me that is making this challenging because Oftentimes it's not our children. Our children aren't doing anything wrong. We as parents are having a hard time because this isn't what I expected. I don't have the tools to deal with this or I'm making this mean something that is scary to me or uncomfortable. So my practice has been when I notice that I get, I'm getting kind of anxious or triggered about something involving my child, that is a clue for me to deconstruct and to say, okay, what is really going on here? What story am I telling myself? What am I making this mean? And how can I kind of do my own work on my own emotional regulation so that I can just meet this kid, you know, with whatever's going on and not bring my own baggage right mm -hmm. into that engagement. Okay. And that makes sense. Yes, that makes complete okay. sense to me. <laughs> so what are three good things that you've sort of feel felt after going through this practice? Well, um, first of all, it helps me just experience more peace in general, right? If I'm able to kind of not get triggered as much, I can, I cannot be so anxious. It helps me return to calm more quickly. So that is a really big one. I think it also helps me not kind of catastrophize or get really overly um, concerned about uncertainty, you know, which is, I think where a lot of parents go, we want, we want to know that things are going to work out and this is what it's going to look like. And there's no guarantees. So it helps me with that. And then I would say thirdly, it has, really helped and it continues to help my relationship with my child because when I can just show up for my kid without my weird energy, it creates a deeper connection. And that is, you know, that's really at the heart of, of being a good parent is having our kids feel securely attached to us and having that deep connection that um, is based in respect and trust and love. Mm -hmm. So in contrast, what are any of the challenges that you felt after going through the practice? Well, I think um, that's a, such an interesting question based on the, the, you know, the thing that we're talking about here. Yeah. I think that the challenge is that it doesn't fix things. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to deal with those same triggers again. It doesn't mean that, oh, this stuff doesn't bother me anymore. And so um, 
so I think that is the challenge of, is that I still have to be intentional about doing the work. Um, mm -hmm. And the progress can be slow and small, right? It's not like flipping a switch and things are fine. And I think, I mean, that's parenting, right? Parenting is relentless and it just means intentionally showing up every day and mm -hmm. doing the work every day. But yeah, I think that's the challenge is sometimes we think, okay, I did this now I should feel better and I shouldn't have to deal with uncomfortable emotions surrounding this anymore, but it doesn't work that way. No, it's, it's a very temporary, it's, it feels like a very temporary fix to a yeah. overall problem. Um, so do you usually set up a time to sort of go ahead and deconstruct? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I do run and I go on long walks. And so I tend to, um, you know, whatever's going on, um, I tend to use those walks and my runs to kind of process and do that work. Mm -hmm. But I, I will do those things usually in the aftermath of a tricky situation where I really need to, to do that deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, how do you think that this practice has impacted your parenting or even just your sort of overall perception in life? Well, it has changed everything for me. Um, it has really been the most effective practice and tool that I've used to be able to navigate raising a differently wired kid, you know, who gets more complicated, you know, with every year um, <laughs> and more interesting and fascinating and all those things. So uh, I think it is definitely just helped me feel more empowered. Like I, I know, like I know that it actually does pay off. I know that it's helped me be a better parent and show up and be in presence mm -hmm. and better navigate sitting in uncomfortableness. And yeah, the, I think there was a part two of the question, but that's, did I answer your question? I think you did uh, just the perception in life. Oh yeah. The bigger in life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just been part of my own personal growth and evolution. So it's certainly, it's, it makes me feel more resourced for navigating anything mm -hmm. difficult that comes up because it's kind of now my default. Yeah. Okay. Um, so based on your experience going through the sort of de deconstruction, um, do you have any other recommendations of another practice that you combine with this? I mean, I would say I talk a lot about this idea of conscious maintenance, which is my way of talking about self-care, but I, I really think it's important that parents prioritize kind of refilling their own emotional and energetic stores, if you will, mm -hmm. um, because, because we're constantly being depleted. Like what's happening is always kind of bringing down our resilience and our ability to find that calm and to co-regulate in difficult moments. So I would say that, you know, a, another practice would be making sure that you, at least once a day you're prioritizing yourself and doing something intentional for yourself. Um, even if that is listening to a podcast or just, you know, putting on a song you love while you're cooking dinner, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but making sure that you're doing one thing for yourself that you're intentionally choosing to do to support your well-being. Mm -hmm. And tied to that, I would just say, 
I think having some sort of a self-compassion practice is really important. And by that, I mean, you know, it could be just having a plan for after a difficult moment so you don't beat yourself up or, you know, kind of spiral like, oh, hey, I really screwed that up and I, I wish I'd done better. And, you know, just having a practice that's a way of resetting your yourself and reminding yourself like, this is really hard and you're doing a good job and what do you need right now? Like something that's really reinforcing this sense of showing up for ourselves. Cause again, we can't show up for our kids if we're not showing up for ourselves. Oh, that's very true. I always like to use the whole um, on mask on the plane analogy. Yes. And I think, I think every, everyone uses that now. Yeah. I don't use a, it anymore because it's a, but, but it's, it's an apt metaphor. I mean, yeah. it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. So going into the questions from audiences, we ha do have quite a few questions. Um, okay. So the first one is at what age do children possibly develop the neurodiver neurodivergency and what are some of the signs and symptoms we as parents should look, look out for? Well, I mean, I think that first of all, most neurodevelopmental differences are genetic. And so, you know, our kids, their brains are wired a certain way, like environmental factors may, you know, exacerbate or, or highlight or bring out certain challenges, but I think their brains are wired. Um, in the, the way that they are, if they do have ADHD or um, if they're autistic. Um, so so it can be from a very young age. I, I would pay attention to that sensory piece. Like we are, you know, if you have, a, and that could be like tactile again, it could be a child who um, who is really physical, right? Really like, um, big movements, has to be moving all the time. It might be a child who's really clumsy. It might be a child who, you know, we're talking about being overly sensitive, um, who tends to kind of break down in certain, you know, doesn't have a lot of resilience in certain situations. It could be a child who's a really picky eater or, or wants to wear long sleeve shirts in the middle of summer, you know, um, is summer, your summer's in the Anyway, but you know what I'm saying. When it's really hot yeah. out wearing long sleeve shirts. Okay. Um, <laughs> so just kind of paying attention to those things, like those sensitivity pieces tend to be really early signs. If, even with babies, a child who really struggles to settle can be a sign that your child is neurodivergent in some way. And, you know, they're processing information in a way that can be um, challenging for their little systems. So mm -hmm. from a very early age, I mean, the could be a kid who teaches themselves to read at the age of two. Like that's certainly a sign that your child is differently wired. So just paying attention um, to things that just seem more intense or, or bigger than maybe what you're reading in books or what you're seeing with other kids. Okay. So why do teachers and parents think that children with dyslexia are just seen as being lazy when they're clearly they have a learning disability. Gosh, I don't know, but that's not cool. Um, dyslexia, first of all, is such a, I mean, I don't know how it's done, but I've talked to many dyslexia experts and it apparently is a very simple thing to diagnose. And yet it's still really misunderstood. Um, and there's nothing lazy about it. In fact, we know that many dyslexic people 
are so smart because they are overcompensating. They're working so hard to do to do what their peers, their same age peers are doing. They have all these workarounds. And um, so that's really unfortunate. I would just have to say that it's just lack of understanding. I think, again, with a twice exceptional child, which as I mentioned at the beginning, is someone who's gifted with a learning disability, sometimes that giftedness can completely hide the fact that there is a learning disability because that child is able to compensate. And so, and the teachers or people might be able to look how smart this kid is, you know, this is, this child doesn't have anything going on. And so I think it is just a lack of understanding about the way these things can show up. Mm -hmm. Next one is a lot of children who sort of have a disability sort of have a emotional lack of empathy kind of thing. Is that one of the characteristics that's part of being, of having a disability? Um, I don't think so. And I, I don't, I would say that I haven't experienced that. Um, I, in my experience are, you know, a lot of differently wired kids may struggle with kind of reading the room, uh, with social cues or, or understanding how to navigate certain environments because they may get overwhelmed, um, by the expectations or the nuances of a social situation. So I think a lot of times our kids it may look like a lack of empathy, but sometimes it can be too much empathy. Sometimes it can be feeling too many things and not having the skills yet to interpret those things or to know how to respond. Or maybe the way a child responds is, is externally, quote unquote, inappropriate, but it completely appropriate for their neurodivergence. So I think, I think the challenge is that we're always kind of holding neurodivergent kids up to these like standards of what it looks like to be empathetic. What does it look like to, to be all of these things? And that's not in alignment with the way that these kids navigate and experience the world. So mm -hmm. it's, it's our own interpretation. That is the problem. Not that these kids have a lack of empathy, um, but it's rather we, have these rules that it looks like X, Y, and Z. And those rules are not inclusive of differently wired people's experiences. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of representation. Like I think watching um, Sheldon on Big Bang Theory is an example of a neurodivergent child. And his lack of empathy is very, is very obvious throughout the whole show. Mm -hmm. So is that sort of a representation that is a good representation or like sort of an appropriate representation to have of neurodivergent children? I mean, that's an interesting question, I think. And I, I will, I know of that character, but I have not watched the show, but um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that if a lot of people, and I, I think that Sheldon is meant to be autistic. I'm not certain, um, mm -hmm. but a lot of neurodivergent or autistic kids are very concrete thinkers, right? Or, um, they may really say what's on their mind and that, you know, cause it's really important to them to just speak their truth. And so I think there's, there's just a different way of navigating the world. It doesn't mean that that person doesn't feel things deeply. I think that is a misconception. 
Um, and there's been research to show that, it, again, in fact, especially when talking about autistic people, they feel things too deeply, right? But it, it's the way that we expect they're feeling something to be exhibited. Um, and that's not to say that maybe that's a fair representation that some neurodivergent people don't you know, read some subtle nuances. So it might look like they don't care, but it's just that they didn't interpret that situation in the same way. They interpreted it from a different lens. And again, it's that it's that expectation of what we think things should look like or what being empathetic should be versus being truly accepting and understanding of the lens through which another person is experiencing the world. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen or heard of a film that sort of misrepresented um, neurodivergent children? Um, well, of course, the one coming to mind right now is Rain Man, right? Um, and that wasn't neurodivergent children, but that was, yeah, um, Dustin Hoffman playing a autistic adult who was counting cards in casinos or something. And it yeah. was, a you know, unfortunately... Um, that was what people thought autism was for many, many years. I'm not thinking of a specific film or show right now that really got it wrong. Mm -hmm. But I do think, you know, I'll just say that I think typically when we're talking about like ADHD or, you know, when we see these things show up in mainstream media, it tends to be kind of like the, the sidekick or quirky character. And it highlights, it kind of either makes a joke about someone's neural difference, right? Or it kind of highlights, you know, the quirky oddness of it. And it's, mm-hmm. and it tends to be their defining trait as opposed to just being a part of who this person is. So I find that kind of interesting, but um, no shows are coming to mind right now. Okay. One of the shows I think that recently was sort of discovered as being a representation of different differences um, is the Winnie the Pooh, different characters on Winnie the Pooh, mm. how a lot of them, like, for example, Tigger has ADHD, Piglet Careful. has, like, it is so interesting how that was, it may not be what was intended, it may not mm-hmm. be exactly what was intended, but the way that it's come out now as being similar to that, um, really, really hit when I found that out. I was like, wow, okay, we've been watching this everyone pretty much watched it their entire life. And that's something that that's probably why everyone sort of had a character they really related to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I was just talking about Winnie the Pooh uh, with someone else earlier. Cause that was a, we listened to those audiobooks over and over and over and over and over and over and over again um, <laughs> when my kid was, uh, was younger, but yeah, that's true. There's some, there's a character for, for everybody there. It's so it's so interesting to me when I found that out. <laughs> um, okay, so now we're up to the last part, last little segment of the show. It's called the open mic. Gives you a chance to talk to the audience about anything that you are passionate about, anything you would like to share with them. Um, so in the last few minutes, last couple of minutes or so, I'd love to give you the floor and let you talk about anything that you would wish to share. Oh gosh, where should I go now? Um, <laughs> I'll just share that, you know, um, something I've been thinking more and more about, I mean, certainly this has been part of my work all this time, but going back to the work 
around the nervous system and there's something called polyvagal theory and maybe you've talked about it on your show before uh was founded by uh dr stephen porges and it really is uh, that nervous system um you know understanding the way the nervous system impacts how we experience the world and it's really the blending between polyvagal and neurodivergent kids is happening in a really substantial way there is a woman that I really respect and admire, Dr. Lori DeSottles, and she is really a pioneer doing work right now in helping educators understand how to be more focused on connection in the classroom as opposed to compliance and doing that in part by helping educators and teachers and administrators focus on calming their own nervous system so that they can co-regulate with their, with the students they work with. Anyway, I, this is where I see kind of the next, I mean, the work with parenting with parents is so important, but we're losing so many kids in schools. So many kids are being traumatized in classrooms because they are being treated, treated as if they're behavioral problems and they're just getting kicked out of schools or they're being told they're bad. Um, and the kids will start to identify as such. And we're just losing those kids. It's really hard to recover from that. And so that's where I see the next kind of big shift happening um, and the work that really has to be done and the work I really want to kind of get more involved in is how do we help schools be safer places and how do we going back to what we talked about at the beginning but how do we help educational models do the work that they need to do so that kids can can be who they are and can learn in a way that helps them feel good about themselves and looks at their strengths and there's just so much education that has to happen to to help teachers know how to do this work for themselves anyway so that is my something I'm feeling really passionate about. I lived in Europe for, you know, a bunch of years um, during my child's like middle school years, I homeschooled. Um, but one of the reasons why I homeschooled was because the schools were not really very neurodiversity and affirming. And so um, not only here in the US, but I, I see a lot of opportunity in other countries that I, I really would love to just see growing awareness and understanding about neurodivergence. And I think we have to really look at the school systems next. Yes, no, I agree. I, I was homeschooled during my high school. Um, my sister you was. Since, okay. Yeah. I know. I, I came <laughs> through it. <laughs> um, my sister was homeschooled, I think, from the fourth grade. So okay. very early on. Um, it was just a lot of people not understanding her. So they felt that my parents felt that it was a lot easier for her to focus on school and just to get through school if she was just focusing on that without having to worry about any other thing. Um, there was a, there's a school in Australia, the school that I went to, it's sort of like a distant education school and it was for so many people who wanted to follow the, it was aimed at kids who were all around the world but wanting to focus on the Australian school curriculum so instead of having to move schools each time they're able to sort of stick with one curriculum yeah. um, but it became a school with a lot of kids with different 
learning disabilities. And even though it was not for that, it was still had that availability. And it was so amazing to see, like you would have um, monthly meetups. I think once a month, each grade would sort of come up and you'd have an open day and you just get to meet the kids face to face that you've been talking to. And everyone yeah. had such an amazing different story to that. So you had that socializing aspect without being overstimulated with any of it. And it yeah. was so amazing to to go through that. And it was the perfect school for us at the time. It's um it's probably still one of my highlights of my whole childhood was going to that school and was dealing with kids, like getting to meet kids who sort of were in the same area as me, who were overstimulated very quickly. So it was um it was a really nice way of growing up. So when you talk about homeschool earlier, it was such a like homeschool, I definitely recommend it. It's not for every every kid for sure. I mean, it's not oh, for gosh. every parent either, but oh, um it was a pretty nice experience to have to be able to have that sort of safe learning environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. And you know, there are more and more schools, alternative learning environments popping up, which is really exciting to see. And they're not accessible to everybody. They're not, you know, and, and it just doesn't work for every family. And so um, while I'm so excited to see this, you know, significant increase in alternative school models, micro schools, like there's just so much cool stuff happening in education. But the majority of students are still in public schools and and maybe living in places where they don't have access to the resources to those alternative programs. And so um, we need to make sure that we don't forget about all the, the kids who don't have access to, to those really cool learning environments. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I want to thank you so much, Debbie, for coming onto the show and for talking about this and for educating. I think I definitely learned a lot especially when it comes to terminology is a big thing. Um, like we get incorrect so many times, like the word disorder. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's listed here, like on the, on my script as disorder. And I think it's listed on yours as well, but it's nice knowing that that's something that we don't use. And that's not mm -hmm. like a word that is commonly known. And just learning that as well, I think is a big impact on how we go through our daily life. Um, in learning about neurodivergence is, and it's a big impactful life lesson for me as well that I will continue to put into my daily life. Um, awesome. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And is there a way that if an audience member would like to get in contact with you that they are able to? Yeah, they should just go to tiltparenting.com. I have a contact uh, form on my website. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook if people want to connect with me through social media. Okay, perfect. I will have both of those linked in the description below for anyone who wants to get in touch with her. Um, yeah, so thank you everyone for listening. And if you want to follow our social media and all our socials, it's all down below. Everything is down in the description. So if you want any advice or anything, just send it through there. Um, yeah, so thank you guys for listening and I will see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives, 
and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent and thanks for tuning in.